Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Today is Wednesday, September the 15th, and this is episode 2956 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, I've got a great gal I'm fixing to bring online here with us in a moment, and uh, if you like this and you want to see it a little bit more personally, I, we actually did live stream today's podcast, and it is on my YouTube channel. There'll be a link in the show notes if you want to see the live stream, doesn't have the intro and exit, and you want to... You want to hear the intro, at least, to today's show. There's uh, some important announcements in today's intro. We'll get to those in just a minute. But uh, Betsy's awesome. And she has a, uh, a website called Freedom Junkie Radio. It's at freedomjunkieradio.com with a podcast. And I think you're going to want to hear more from her after you hear her today. We're going to be talking about your rights, how to know your rights, use your rights, and keep your rights. And we're going to talk about a lot of the craziness that goes on in the world. It was my intention to hold the interview to an hour today. Um, because I'm jammed up today. I've, I've got behind today. I've got uh, Unloose the Goose today at 4 o'clock. Uh, as I record this, it's already 2.30, this intro segment for uh, the live stream that we've already done. And it, even with all that, uh, the interview today went about an hour 40, and it's because it was that good. So you've got a uh, strap in. This, this, my... my uh, my wife said something like she's a tornado or a firestorm or something like that. And uh, I, my wife is seldom wrong about things like that, and she certainly wasn't this time. So we'll bring on Betsy in just a minute. What I wanted to tell you, though, um, uh, important intro uh, or announcement during the intro today, is today uh, a post went up on the blog that announced officially uh, TSP Fall 21's workshop. And so if you have any interest in coming to that, you really need to read the write-up and you really need to listen to what I have to say right now because I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to hear from people that are going to be very upset because they didn't know, even though this is almost two weeks in advance, of how it's going to work. It, it does sell out every year. It sells out generally within 10 minutes or less. Uh, I expect this year for that maybe to be, we might have an all-time record in how quickly um, the workshop sells out this year. Uh, maybe like last year I'll be able to add a few seats uh, during that time period as I watch things come in and who's not driving and who's carpooling and, and things like that because my biggest limitation is parking space. But you need to be on the Telegram channel and or group because it will go to both of them um, for TSPC. Uh, and there's a link to do that in every episode of the show notes and, and certainly in the write-up on this. Because what I'm going to do at 9 a.m. on the 25th of September, that's a Saturday, and it's the fairest way I know to do it, I'm going to drop the link to sign up into the Telegram channel. If it goes more than 10 minutes and it's still available, I'll put it on the main website. Last year, that didn't happen. It, it didn't. It, it went... I say under 10 minutes, it was like two, two and a half minutes for the first wave, and then I put up like five more seats because of people uh, that were not bringing a vehicle. And uh, so that's going to happen, and I, I've put out everything that we're going to be doing, uh, some of the food we're going to have, but I'm going to just give you an idea of what this workshop is going to be real quick here at the beginning. Uh, there'll be property walks with myself and Nick Ferguson, two different uh, property walks. We'll split the group in half. 
because like 80 people, like I can't do a walk with 80 people and everybody hear me and neither can Nick. So Nick will take one group to the food forest. I'll take one group to uh, some of the stuff that we've done this year with uh, hydroponics and aquatics. And then we'll switch the groups and Nick and I will take each group through the same walk we did. So everybody gets the same. It'll just be two, two in a row for us as presenters. We're going to talk about off-grid homesteading in a don't, concrete don't home uh, with karaoke Tim. Uh, Jake Robinson uh, has really impressed me with the work he's been doing on raw land, and he's going to be doing a presentation on uh, vetting raw land with technology so you only take your time to look at land that actually you might buy. Um, I have something really big, a huge announcement. I'm going to tell you what it is. You'll have to read the write-up to see what it is. Some of you know about it. Some of you don't. Uh, my old buddy Chris Prater is coming into town, and along with a pile of shrimp from the Indian River that will be part of one of the meals, um, he's going to give you a real-world story of strategic relocation, what it's actually like, the good, the bad, the uh, different, basically the what of it. John Pugliano is going to be doing a report on strategic relocation, talking about how to analyze it to do it for profit and wealth protection. Dr. Ken Berry is going to be doing two presentations on the proper human diet and staying healthy in our modern world. Jason Elliott's going to be giving a presentation on your first year raising livestock, chickens, pigs, and turkeys as a total newbie and how that worked out for him, including some of the things that didn't work out and why he failed. I'm going to give you a cryptocurrency presentation I'm going to call Zero to Hero with Crypto. Uh, I'm going to do that one myself where you will, if you have any struggles whatsoever with cryptocurrency, You will be able to buy cryptocurrency, trade cryptocurrency, transfer cryptocurrency, use cryptocurrency. And, and I can get that all done in 15 minutes of the presentation. And then so the people that are more experienced won't be bored. Once I get that done, I am going to do about a half hour on emerging technologies with cryptocurrency and, and, and put things in your brain that I don't think you'll get anywhere else and, and get people talking and so that we can have discussions about it in the after hours and the breakouts, et cetera, uh, with how maybe we can accomplish some really amazing things using this technology. Uh, Sherry Hahn, who I recently met, is going to be doing an herbal presentation on immune support with herbs. Uh, we're going to have an under, uh, a presentation on underground networking with Nicole Awesome Sauce. Uh, Matthew Sersley, who was on recently, uh, attorney, tax attorney, is going to be doing a presentation that I'm calling anyway, Beating the Tax Man with His Own Rulebook. And Brandon Yost is going to be talking about how to build a business using your homestead as a base. Not necessarily a homestead business, but a homestead-based business. And that will make sense if you get to come. There's tons of good food coming. I'll be telling you more about this over the coming two weeks. We get ready to go on sale uh, Saturday the 25th of the morning of. And uh, But, man, you don't want to miss it. This is going to be, if not the best one we've ever done, one of the best ones we've ever done. It truly is a great experience. And uh, I, I, I push this heavily as we lead up to putting it on sale every year, not because I worry about selling out, but because I know I'm going to sell out. And every year I see people who I know on a first-name basis not get in. And at the same time that I want people who have been here a bunch of times to come again, I want people who have... Um, never been to get a chance to come, and the only way I know to be fair about this is to make it a jump ball. And I'm telling you, it is one of those things. It's not like the spring ones where, you know, generally I help fill Nicole's before I put mine up on sale if I do a spring one, and uh, they're designed to be smaller and what have you. The fall is the big one that everybody's excited to come to, and I can tell just by the um, the discussion and the excitement on the Telegram channel and group that this one is going to go like Immediately, So I just want to be clear about that. With that, I want to get into uh, our discussion with Betsy today. And, uh, man, 
this is going to, I think you'll really enjoy this. I think we'll certainly have her on again. Uh, before we do, though, let me remind you that uh, you can support this show by supporting our sponsors. Today's sponsors of the day are ButcherBox. Uh, ButcherBox is a great way to get pastured pork, uh, grass-fed beef, pastured poultry delivered right to your front door. Uh, they are a fantastic partner, been with us now over three years, uh, and I just love uh, working with them. The fact that I take barter instead of money from them tells you how much I love their product. They pay me in meat, and I'm happy to be paid in meat. Uh, next up, the Wealth Steading Podcast, John Pugliano. You get to meet him if you come to TSP uh, 2021. And, of course, he's on our expert panel. He's been on the show many times. He's a wonderful guy. He's got his own podcast called the Wealth Steading Podcast, where he discusses the principles of wealth and the things that he's doing in the real world and the real market today with his investments and his clients' investments. You can learn more at wealthsteading.com. And with that, I want to say, hey, Betsy, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Jack, it is such an honor to be here, and what a time to be alive. It is an interesting time, I guess would be a good way to put it, to uh, to be alive I think we're going to have a good time uh, chatting today. Uh, for those on the live feed, you guys can drop questions in the comment section, and maybe we'll pay attention to that at least a little bit. I'll let you know for those doing that that we are monitoring the comments from YouTube. We are on uh, Float and Odyssey, but I'm about as uh, multitasked as I can be today, so I won't see those comments. If you want to make comments, I'll see, or that Betsy will see. Uh, let's do those on YouTube. All right, with that, uh, Betsy, before we dig into this topic today, which I love, know your rights, use them and keep them. Let's who is who is Betsy, and take us back to like I don't know you're spacing out in high school or college or something trying to figure out what to do with your life and what path leads you to a place where you're engaging in this type of I guess activism would be the word today. I certainly never set out to be an activist. I had I took a uh, this is an interesting question and I took a test in high school to like see what type of a career I should get or I should take or whatever. And the thing that came out that the lady who interpreted the test was like, I've never seen this before. She has an independent score of 97. And my mom was sitting there with me and just looked and was like, oh, that makes sense. You know, so I've had this fierce need for independence um, just to 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 do things on my own and make it on my own and 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 be you know, like I could survive if I had to. I, and I didn't think of it that way at a young age. I didn't think of it like that. Um, and I've always taken the, the unbeaten path. And it wasn't it wasn't on consciously. It was just how I'd, I've always done things. And I never wanted to work for anybody else. And so I I ended up becoming a um, the thing that that made that was my bread and butter for a while was private music lessons. I would teach music to people and that way I could choose my own times and choose my own place and choose everything and take vacations if I needed. So I always felt pretty free. And then my husband and I, when, when I finally found a partner that, that made sense to spend my life with, we, one of the first things we did was sit down and say, okay, we're creating our lives. We've been creating our lives. That's what we do, whether we know we're doing it or not. What do we want to create together? And the first thing we said was freedom. We want to have freedom. So what does that look like? And we thought, well, you know, we'd like to have freedom to travel and freedom to do what we want. So how do you get there? And uh, then we we were like, he said, I think I need to own my own business. I said, great, let's do it. So we set out to figure out how to buy a business. And then we set down the entrepreneurial road, which is definitely a road of freedom. And then at some point along the way, a friend of mine, we were having a political discussion 
And she just out and out said, well, you're a libertarian. And I had said, I don't know what I am because I, I want the government to be small. I don't want it in my backyard. I, I don't care what people do. Socially, I'm liberal and um, fiscally, I'm conservative. I don't want the government taking from me and giving to others. I'll do that. You know, and she goes, you're a libertarian. And then the next thing I know, I'm so irritated in 2011 by the fact that now this happened in 2011. I'm sure you're aware of it when the NDAA passed that year and, and our sixth amendment right to a fair trial is no longer, no, it's no longer a thing. I uh, got so angry. I joined the libertarian party and ran for Congress. So it's just been my path. I'm a, I've, I've been a prepper since, since uh, 2011 when Ron Paul was saying the economy is going to collapse, you know? So. It's, it's amazing. I think a lot of us have similar backgrounds, especially kind of in our age bracket. Um, I had my, oh shit, I'm a libertarian moment myself, or like, I didn't know what I was, but I knew like I hated everybody, it seemed like. And, uh, I actually, I ran for Congress in Texas as a libertarian myself, um, I think back in 2004. Wow. And, we have more in common than I knew. And then I had my, uh, my awakening with how disgusting the real political system was uh, an attorney that we had retainer for one of my companies uh, heard me talking to one of my partners about the fact that I had done that back in 04. And this would have been about 06, 07. And he walks up to me, he put his hand on my shoulder. This is a guy I'm paying at this point, but he had the power within the state, honestly, with money and connections. And he goes, yeah, if you want that seat, run as a Republican. I'll make sure you get it. And he wasn't bullshitting. He was like, yeah, I'd rather have you there than than who is there now. And I I I'll, I can do that. You want to you want a seat in the in the state uh, house? I can do that. And it was like I felt dirty, like I need to go take a shower, right? When you when you when you encounter something, and I'd known this guy like several years. He was a great attorney, and he was very good at what he did for us. But when you realize like this is how this system, re- like you know it, but when you feel it, and like when you look at the guy when he says like if you want that seat, you can have it, and it's not. He's not bullshitting. You know what I mean? Like he's dead serious. Like that's, that's easy. We could do that for you. No problem, man. That's, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a, a total different view of things. And I guess that's why now I'm, I don't really consider myself a, a libertarian in the classic sense anymore, like LP party. Right. Me too. I, I'm an anarchist. Like I just don't want none of this shit at all. Um, but it's interesting. You walk that path and kind of end up in the same place. So many of us do, I think. Well, and the, the the kind of slimy part of it for my husband said I didn't run for Congress. He said I trotted for Congress because I ran as a libertarian. You know, I, I wasn't going to win. I got the most votes that any liberty. So I was running for U.S. Congress. And, oh, okay. and yeah, I got between four and five percent of the vote, which was more than any candidate had gotten in Texas, which isn't even close to enough to win. And no. um, then someone while I was trotting said, uh, what if you. If you, you do realize that if you win and you go to Washington and you start making waves, like you actually start having a voice, they'll shut you down. I mean, they have ways they'll, they'll threaten you. And I was like, what? You know, I was so naive and it's true. It is a well greased machine up there. Most everybody there has, they, they've been chosen by the powers that be. It doesn't matter what side they're on. It's, it's one big dirty game with two teams and most people get to go rah, rah for it for the whole thing by choosing a team. So yeah, I'm with you. I yeah. wish we could figure out a way to self govern. That would be I helpful. want to move on to our outline here, but I want to kind of close the gap on one thing there. Cause I'm not sure if you're aware of this. I'm, I'm sure plenty of people in 
in my audience that maybe are new to the show are really not aware of something called the party dues system. Are you familiar with that? The party dues system? Yeah. That's how they take somebody like you if you actually win, and they put you under the thumb the day you get there. So when you show up for your first day as a freshman congressman, and I'm talking federal congress here like you're talking about, they they basically give you your freshman briefing, and then they give you a book. It's a like a three-ring binder, and they say, here, take this and go over there. And there's a building that's basically a telemarketing building. And they say, you need to raise $125,000 for the Republican or the Democrat Party, depending on which side you're on. And if you're like, I'm an outsider, y'all didn't do shit for me. Hey, we promoted the Republican Party, and you're either, even if you were a libertarian, you're either going to caucus with the Democrats or caucus with the Republicans. You can't be there by yourself. So one of those sides is going to say, we, if you want to play ball, you got to go do this. And it's a list of very friendly donors, and you go there and you basically do a telemarketer's job. And you say, you know, hi, I'm Jack Spierko. I'm a new congressman from the state of Texas, and I am calling you to see if you can help support the Republican Party. And, of course, they go, sure. And after you raise enough money to pay your first bill in the party due system, then you can do things like actually participate in the legislative process. Without this, literally the only thing they let you do is you can show up on voting day and vote yes or no. That's it. If you want to sponsor a bill, be on a committee, do anything, you have to play this game. And then there's actually a freaking price list. If you want to co-sponsor a bill, it's this much extra. If you want to be on a, if you want a committee seat, it's this much. If you want to be the chairman of a committee, it's this much. And this is legal. This is legal. You're selling out on the first day. You have, they make you sell out or you don't get to do anything. And anybody out there listening to this that wants to get a better understanding of that, I learned this from a dude named Patrick Barron like eight years ago now. I interviewed him way back then and he has a website still up, little couple pager. It's called definingthemachine.com. And if you have any faith left in the legislative process, if you've been under a rock all the way up to 2021 and you're not familiar with how screwed up it is, if you go read that, when I, when I understood everything he was saying about that process, I went, so putting in new congressmen is basically like expecting that when a shark sheds its teeth and the next row of teeth come in, the shark's going to change. That, that's, that's what we're doing because if the system is already set up to control, then the, the people you're putting in are literal figureheads. And they might be able to influence a little bit this way or that way, but everything they do get, they're going to have to give. And not in a good, you know, what would they think of a democratic give-and-take, compromise, bipartisan? No, no. They're going to have to literally sell you out to get you something you want. And so I'm done. I mean, I, like it sounds like you are too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about, you know, did you hear about that um – the, the group of parents that went into a little town in Arizona and they basically physically removed the good and said, y'all are gone. We're, yeah. we're voting in new people right now. Right now we could go do that. Like, like physically remove Congress and say, y'all are done. We're starting over. But see, I don't think we can do that with Congress. I think we can do that with local school boards and stuff. And especially like, so learn your recall procedures locally and things like that, where you can do it. Look at the fiasco they made out of a, a half-naked guy dressed like a buffalo sitting behind Nancy Pelosi's desk. We have people sitting in federal prison with no charges and, and no due process for over six months now, and they sent, like, it's something like six or seven times more troops they sent to the Capitol building to protect 535 ass clowns than the number of troops they sent to help get our people out of Afghanistan. So, like, the whole pull people out of their seats can work, and it calls some backfire. We have to be very careful where, how, and when we do that. But 
Um, I think the other thing we can do is form parallel systems of, I don't want a parallel government, but parallel systems of governance. Do you, we, we, we have taken your recommendations under our advisement and determined that they do not apply to us. Goodbye. You know, and that's, that's through, um, through the, I think it's demanding of your rights and, and, and it's exert, ex, the, the, um, the initiation and the uh, practicing of your rights and then the defense of your rights. Mm-hmm. Like that all has to be part of it. Like you don't have any rights in reality, like rights that you just have. Like if you can't defend it, it's not a right. And we need to start, I think, understanding that. Um, I know you're big on getting people into like know their rights groups within the communities. And I think that's a good first step because I think a lot of people that actually have disagreements on what to do with those rights can agree on the fact that those rights should be respected. So maybe I don't want to walk around with a diaper on my face. Maybe somebody else does. I don't care if they do. I just want us to both be able to make our decision that way. Yep. And so in that line of tyranny, you know, where does it, where does it begin? And you have to know what are, you know, so this, I don't know. What, what do you want to go into? Do you want to talk about uh, know your rights groups or what do you want to talk about? Well, yeah, let's talk about that. What, what are, okay. what do you mean when you say putting together groups? Okay. And you say things like no one can make you wear a mask or take a shot. No, you, no one can make you do anything that your physical body. No, um, so let's, let's start with rights. What are rights? Well, you have to go back to natural rights. People love to talk about constitutional rights and that's a great topic, but it's not like the constitution got written and all of a sudden we had rights, you know, the, 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 the rights were there to begin with. So what that's, it's a deep topic. You can spend days at a, at a conference on, there's a guy named Mark Passio. Do you know, Mark? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. He's amazing. If you, if you're interested in learning uh, from a real powerful, uh, under deep, he's, he just understands rights. He's gone there so much. He gives weekend long seminars on rights and natural rights and human rights. Um, and you know, human rights, we've watched them. We watch them get taken all over the world, all over the time for our entire lives. And we sit there and go from our armchairs. Oh, that's, that's terrible. But when it, when you recognize that it's in your own backyard, you start to go, okay, hold on a minute. What human rights are important. They're extraordinarily important. And so, um, Natural rights are things. Well, we we did enumerate them when in the Declaration of Independence when they said, you, you know, life, liberty, the the uh, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay, so we all have a right to life. We have a li- right to liberty. Those are that's huge and that's spoken. Um, our natural rights that we were born with or God given or natural, whatever you want to call them, are actually infinite because you have the right to to touch your nose. You have the right to scratch your knee. You have the right. No one can take that away from you. And and they're infinite. And then you can't enumerate them all. So how, when do we enumerate them and why? And it had to be written because we have to determine, you know, that, that these, your right to live. And we can, you know, there's, a, there's that whole issue of the before you're born. I'm going to talk about people who are born. That is a whole other topic that that I don't mind talking about but um when you're a human being and you no one can come and round you up and take you away they can't do that and and so we have in our first our first I think we should say they can't do that with legitimacy 
It doesn't mean it can't be done. It is done all the time, all over the world. I've seen it done in parts of the world. So can't do it. Again, back to your right to your personal sovereignty, that's only as true as your ability to defend it because I've seen people round it up, thrown in a truck, and taken away. Okay, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. They do it. It is. It goes against natural rights or constitutional rights. Um, now, if you've committed a crime, then we've determined that, yes, you can be hauled off. If you haven't committed a crime, then there's no – they cannot detain you. And then, right, we have to define crime, right? Because because the state says something's a crime doesn't mean it's a crime. Um, my father-in-law and his family were part of the underground during World War II in the Netherlands. And, and when they were hiding Jewish people and helping Jewish people get out of the state so they wouldn't be exterminated in camps, they were committing a crime. But the actual crime was being committed by the state. Right. So – Something is illegal doesn't make it wrong, and just because something is legal doesn't make it you're right. right. Yeah, there's so much of that in the world, and people think of that. So when you say if you committed a crime, then people think, well, that means breaking a rule of the state. I think when you and I use that word, we mean breaking a rule of natural law. Right. Because you have sovereignty to yourself. I have sovereignty to myself. And if if you want to if you want to sit in your house and get baked on dope all day, that's your business. Right. And until you steal my TV to pay for your dope, I, I should have nothing to say about that. Right. Right. Exactly. It's, you know, that the victimless crime or whatever, you know, like, what, how, why is that a thing? <laughs> so, um, you know, but let's go back to the anarchy concept. If we lived in a tribal world where we were as a society deciding what was right and what was wrong, you know, if somebody is a in your community is going around raping people, then you as a community would probably go haul him off and, and lock him up. You know, it doesn't, cause it's wrong because that is wrong. Yeah. Rape is, is we, yeah, that's harming someone's person and you, you can't do that in a civil. Well, I say the threat of like the three women who you raped fathers dealing with you is probably more of a deterrent than the fact that you might go to jail. You know, absolutely. right. I'm because I'm thinking if you do that to my daughter, my or my granddaughter, I have a son, my granddaughter, my daughter in law, etc. You're done. Like yeah. you, you are like you're not get, you're not getting locked up. And I, I kind of put that group of people into the category of we don't really need to execute you because after we execute you, we will bury you. So if we just skip a step. The problem fixes itself. We're going to function stack there. You know, we'll bury you and you'll die. Like, and I know that sounds really crass, but we're talking about a horrible crime here. But yet we're talking about people having their whole lives upended and destroyed and maybe doing more time in a prison than that rapist will do for things that literally harmed no one. That's the society we live in today. Right. right. And it's so wonderful that everything's getting you know, thrown up against the wall right now. Everything is, is under the microscope and it's awesome. We're actually thinking again as a species. It's just amazing. Some so, of us are. <laughs> some of us are. I, I do think there is some hope in this whole COVID nonsense. Like I do think it's made people who were like the people that were hardcore left big government. I love you, daddy. Please spank me harder. Like those people, I don't think this has helped them at all, but I think the vast middle majority that both either leaned left or right, that pretty much just like, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do my job leave me alone. And I don't care. And I don't want to get involved and I don't want to be part of this. I just want to be left alone. It's like, well, they're not going to leave you alone. And I think a lot of them, even some that maybe lean toward, you know, 
we should have masks. I mean, they, when you start saying things like vaccine passports and mandates and taking away people's jobs and stuff like that, they start to say, no, this is, this is not the dream I was sold as an American citizen. And many other countries, I think the same way. We just have kind of a U.S. centric audience here. And so I think it has been in some ways a great awakening. But then the other side of that, I've always said, like, we better wake up before it's too late. And if, if people don't really take this opportunity, I think too late is it, it might make may come and go. I think you nailed it. There, there are people that are going to stay fast asleep. And, 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 you know, government worship is a religion. And that's but it. Like you said, there's a middle, there's a, but you know, this, this sleepiness that was over us where people would come home and tune in to the, the big three major television and, and like zone out and just think it's, everything seems important now. Every conversation, there's no time. There's no, and it's wonderful. I keep, we've been talking about parallel societies and creating new, uh, new clinics where unvaccinated are welcome by it's by the unvaccinated for the unvaccinated so that yeah. nurses that are unvaccinated are welcome and and a new banking system imagine that a parallel banking system where those of us who who you know don't want to be charged an arm and a leg for credit and who want just you know it's the whole that don't I want anything to do with the giant behemoth that is that owns everything that banking system that owns everything if you look into uh who owns every single one of our major corporations, whether it's food, travel, entertainment, it's all owned by the same people. They own each other. They have foundations. I can name the big three foundations. I've been learning so much. Everybody's like a sponge right now and we're finding each other. So that's another reason to start a group, especially if you are lonely. If there's someone listening right now who's sitting at home and is there, uh, they're never going to take a, anything in their body. Like they'd rather die than live with something that they're, un, that they don't want in their body. And they don't have a community around that. They haven't found, maybe they know one guy, but you know, it's like there are millions of us. And when I, you know, when the kind of COVID came and, and everybody kind of joyfully went into their little hole and said, I'm going to hole up and, and see what happens here. And, and, but then everybody poked back out and said, uh, what's going on out in the world. And, and there's so many people that are like-minded and that, I don't, you know, we're all different. Well, yeah. but who, who stand by the constitution and our rights and what this country was founded on, not where it's not what we're doing now. And we're seeing what's happening in Australia and we're seeing what's happening all over the world. The, the, the people standing up in Europe and in France and, and, and the poor Australians, I don't even know what, I don't even know what they're going to do right now, but the big difference is our second amendment. So it's, yeah, it's, they gave their guns up back, I think in 96. And I think that is the first step before, for a society to truly become completely domesticated and mollified. And I think that's what happened. Like the Australian people were always seen as this like tougher and harder people than us. And that what they've allowed, and I do use the word allowed to occur, I think is not so much because they're unarmed, but due to the fact that they allowed themselves to be unarmed. So I, I don't think you necessarily have to use guns to push back. I think it helps so the government knows if, if they're pushing back and we push back and this goes far enough, they do have guns. Um, but I think there's a mental switch that happens when 
a, a, a person is told, well, there was a shooting over here and these people died and that means guns are dangerous. So give us your gun. And that person actually says, okay, here's my gun. Mm-hmm. I think that's that, that something's happened and it's more, it's less the physical armament. And it's more the mental state that that person made when they, they made that switch. And, you know, I look at our, our, our younger generation right now, what's being done to them in, in schools and colleges and stuff like that. And, and one of the things you have on your own is like how to get people to go deeper. And I, I struggle with that to a degree with people who are not at least a little bit awake, because every time I, I publish something in social media that had this direct fact about, you know, what the real death risk of COVID really is, or some of these alternative treatments and actual data that says, you know, this stuff works or whatever. I get people that are like, what is your source? Well, first of all, my source is the freaking link that you're looking at that I just posted. So stop asking that. But it's the following part where you're just like, they're like, so I can show it to my liberal friends so that they can understand. And I'm like, you know, two months into this, sure. I just feel like at this point, if you buy into this, I don't know there is any way to reach in and pull you out at this point. I think you've locked in that that cable of, of the matrix and you just don't want to come out of your pod. I I want to ask you your thought on something because okay. you know how Biden said a while back, like I don't know why you all you Second Amendment people are so into save like whatever I'm gonna yeah. What he said, but um, that, that you're trying to save yourself from a tyrannical government. He's like, even if we went there, y'all would need uh, what was it like nuclear bombs and F-16s or right, something. Fighter jets, right. yeah, yeah, yeah right. Like, oh, okay. You know what? Actually, uh, Mr. Biden, you don't have. Uh, you just said something that is really powerful because it's true. Our Second Amendment, we have our, our shotguns and our nine millimeters and maybe a few more little fun things, but we don't have rocket launchers and we don't have tanks and we don't have, bo- some of us might have body armor. Um, but if, if our military is getting pansified to the point, like, like, because all the, all the true warriors are out, you know, they're like, I'm yeah. not, not going to do this. If they roll up with a tank in body armor and machine guns, my little nine millimeter is not going to do me any good. It's so, so my, my second amendment isn't, I mean, what do you think about that? I think there's a a lot of things to unpack in that one is that I think we need to understand the purpose of, of, of militia in this country from our founding was never like, Hey, so we're going to go to war with our own government. It was, that could happen, but it was also understood that the armed forces were also us. Like we don't have, People say like, you know, soldier or civilian. We don't really, you know, we don't really have that the way other countries do. Like if you are a soldier in the United States Army or a Marine in the Marine Corps or whatever, you're still a, you're, you're still a, a, you're not a civilian, I guess citizen. In, in fact, when I was in the Army, we used the term citizen soldier. That wasn't just a thing for National Guard at the time. Like you were a citizen first and a soldier second because without the citizenry, there was no purpose to the soldier. And that's, you know, like, so somebody like me, if I'd stuck around for 40 years in the military, they would be putting my ass out the door right now, thinking that way, teaching my soldiers that way, et cetera. They would be like, this guy's got to go. But that's actually what we were taught back then. So the purpose of the militia was to stand beside the military. And that would include we have a foreign invasion, we have some sort of national emergency, or the military goes, yep, you know what, we're just going to point our guns right back there at those guys telling us to do this shit we're not supposed to be doing. And that's why it's so important that members of our armed services take an oath and that they understand that oath. And we, 
unlike a lot of nations, our military, et cetera, do not take an oath to any person. They don't take an oath to a person. They don't, they don't take an oath to the president, right? They don't take an oath to their commanding general. They take an oath to the Constitution, and they agree to abide by the lawful and direct orders that they're given from command above, but that's also subject to are those orders constitutional. Now, the problem is we're not teaching young soldiers what that means anymore. They stand up, they take an oath, and it's like a kindergartner saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. They have no idea what they're saying. They're just saying the thing that they can say to get their enlistment bonus or whatever. Now, the mollifying of our military, I think that it's uh, twofold. I, I don't think you're really mollifying the infantry. I don't think you're mollifying the Marine Corps, recon, or uh, riflemen or whatever. And I think those guys are still who they are. There's a certain amount of what you got to have just to, to get through that kind of training. Um, what they're doing is they're getting rid of senior NCOs. They're getting rid of mid-level, like field-grade com- uh, officers. They want to get rid of the majors, the lieutenant colonels, the full colonels, the sergeant first classes, the master sergeants, the first sergeants that are old school like me that are from my time where we were taught that. And they want them out so they can mold the new mind wherever they want to. I just don't know how much that you're going to be able to do. You're still asking Bill to go turn a tank turret on Bill's cousin. In the end, that's what you're still doing. I think what they plan on doing is relying on technology. You don't need as many Bill's. You don't need as many private Bill Smiths anymore, right? You need one that will do what they're told, and they can do the work now of what 20 soldiers used to do with technology. That tank maybe doesn't even have anybody in it. If you can make an aircraft drone that can drop a cruise missile into somebody's easy chair uh, from from Maryland in Afghanistan, making a tank that drives down the street that blows up buildings or wipes out protesters or uses sonic weaponry or something like that is not that hard to do. And I think that's what they're planning on. In the end, though, you still have to have some people in this chain. And the hope would be that if you had an actual rebellion-type situation, that some of those people on the inside would say, you know, I think I'm on their side. Some might do it directly, and some might do it indirectly. Like, you know, maybe some things that are supposed to work just don't work. Because I I do think most people that go in the military today, uh, despite all of the bad press that we're getting, they may be misguided. I, I feel very used as a person, having now the ability to look back at the past and understand what I was asked to do. But I went in with a very noble intent. I believed in what I was doing, and I think most of those guys and gals that do it, they do. I'm sure there's some now they go in to get their sex change paid for or whatever, but it's, it's still a minority. Um, the other side is if they purge all those people, one of the skills that you develop as a soldier is being a force multiplier. So, and there's people way better at it than me, but I could take 20 people that have never served in the military. Um, they have basics, basic understanding of how a, a rifle works, and I can have them moving as a unit in a couple weeks, right? And so all of us, there's there's more of us prior service than active service, and we all, to varying degrees, have that skill set. So it's it's not that simple cut-and-dry equivalent that Biden made it out to. And I would also say, when you have a president of a country saying that, hey, you need you need F-16s and nuclear bombs to defeat us, I see that as a threat, and you better get armed. That that was the, like, if I was looking for a way where people say, well, why should I be armed? There it is, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a complex situation. I think a lot of people that are kind of like in the, the boogaloo boys mentality and all, like, 
I, I see a lot of parallels to the first American Civil War in not in structure, but in the mental state where both sides thought, ah, it'll be a few weeks, it'll be over, and everything will be great when we win. And if you've ever seen a nation that has been through a civil war, and I've never been in a nation in the middle of a civil war, but I've been in nations that had gone through civil wars in their aftermath, it is horrific. It is horrific. So it's one of those things I hope we can avoid, and I hope it works more like, you know, they used to paddle kids in school, but very few kids got the paddle because the fact that you could get the paddle kept you from needing to get the paddle. I think that like that, I think that this, you know, when you have 55 million Americans that are armed, I think that's a big paddle. And I, the question is, is it big enough? I thought there were more of us than that, but that is enough. That's our best. That's our best estimate. We, and we did that years ago. It's probably bigger now. Uh, I did that for a project we did years ago where we wanted the number and we estimated that about 55. Now it's not 55 million guns. Understand okay. that it's 55 million individuals who possess at least a gun. Some of us possess few more and uh, some of us possess the ability to make more. Right. So, I mean, there's there's a lot that and then you can say all that shit. But look what just happened after 20 years in Afghanistan, you know, and before that, there was a meme, you know, from the Vietnam era. And it was a, you know, a guy in a rice field in a conical hat with a big grin. And it said, you know, this is me when you tell me that, you know, you know uh, ragtag militia can't stand up against the United States military. We have a history of losing to that type of people when people decide I'm not and see those people, what they became is not ungovernable, but ungovernable by us. Like we, we have this arrogance as Americans where we feel like everybody wants what we have. And, and in many ways, everybody does want kind of the economy and the economic opportunity we have, but that doesn't mean they want our system of governance. There, there's people that actually want to live under Islamic tyranny. They think that's great. And there's people that want to live under, you know, some sort of socialism or whatever. And if they're, if my solution to that is if, if they're, uh, if their solution is really that bad, leave them alone and they'll, don't, don't help them, don't enable them, don't deal with them, but just leave them alone. And if you look at Vietnam, that's a perfect example. We spent almost 20 years of blood and treasure there, 58,000 American lives. We've left in 1975 and by 1988, the whole thing fell apart. And now if you want to go have a tourist vacation in Vietnam, it's a nice place to go. Right. So why did we why did we delay that collapse? You know what I mean? Got it. Yeah. So like me, you're a Texan. Correct. And this is this is the uh, survival podcast and not every threat comes from government. So we had a snow apocalypse, I guess some people called it. It was more like the great freezing uh, last year. And if you guys are preppers, you probably got through it pretty well thriving. And it was something I think that if you're not from here, you don't understand how how much it affected us due to the the the, the degree that it separated from the norms. We have a 58,000 acre lake about five miles from our house, 58,000 acres. It froze. It froze solid. And if you're from New York, you're like, so what? No, 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 no. This is the Dallas area of Texas. Like, no, that's not a thing. That's not something you should expect to happen. And I mean, it froze to the point where stupid people were walking on it. And so it, and we're not Pennsylvania or Michigan where the pipes are all, you know, three and a half feet in the ground or deeper. So how did that affect you and how did you guys thrive through it? Well, we did thrive. And so it, and it felt really weird when we recognized. So, um, 
we've been, I've been a prepper for uh, a, a decade. And so the house we live in, we're on property, we're on rainwater, we've got a wood stove and our and our stove in our kitchen is propane. We have a giant propane. So if the power goes out, we're, we're good. And, um, we were thriving during it and it felt good for about a minute because when we recognized that the vast majority of people around us were suffering, it didn't feel good at all. And that's why preppers are just on the bullhorn about get your three months worth of food, get your six months worth of food. You need to be a prepper too, you know? And, and it's like, why are they like that? Why, if they're prepped, why do they care about everybody else? Because we care about everybody else. And when you, when the shit hits the fan, you don't want your entire neighborhood to die and you to live. It's, it's awful. And so, um, and you can't save everybody else. You don't, you didn't prep for a thousand people. You prepped for a few. And so, um, it was, uh, very, like you said, it was an, an experience like none other. My parents, are about three hours from me and their power went out and they're elderly and they were stuck in their car trying to stay warm. Just like you heard on the news, it was true. And those things were true and we couldn't get there. There was no way to get there. The power was all out. The roads were completely iced over and there was no gas. There was no, my dad came down with COVID during that and the doctor's offices were all closed and where they were, there was no power. And so Texas, I mean, people did die. People's pipes froze. Um, the pipe from our rainwater cistern did freeze. We didn't think of that. And so we had to build a fire, uh, put a little, a little Weber grill by it and, uh, just without melting the pipe made it, you know, then we started dripping water like we should have. And, um, it was, we were unable to help. We, we live pretty far from people. We do have some neighbors, um, but I, I, and we could have helped them if we needed to. But um, like I said, it felt good. But at the same time, I just wish everyone would, would get it together and be able to survive whatever happens because then we can all thrive. And um, the one thing that I recognized we did need if it were going to last longer, like I think most people can make it 10 days, I would hope 10 days or three weeks. Um, but we needed to put in a garden at our old property. We had a garden and this one, since we're on rainwater, I had hesitated to do it because in the summer, sometimes we get low on rainwater and then our garden would die. But we, we, we did it this year. I was like, we, we've got to do it. And it's been such a nice wet summer that, um, that was the one thing that we needed. There was something else too. I can't remember right now what it was. Maybe it'll come to me, but being prepped when everybody's power started going out and everything, it was, I I finally got to feel the reward of having done that, hoping that I never would, that I would never. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and my, my concern is this type of thing happens all the time somewhere in the world. And it doesn't seem like people really learn from it. Like, the week after when everything kind of started getting back to normal, I, my neighbors and stuff like that, I heard all these things that they were going to do so it didn't happen again. And I know most of them didn't do it. And I saw some things that, like, they weren't horrible or anything. I certainly saw worse things in impoverished Honduras than this. But, like, you think this is America. And when, when like, the streets started to defrost and people could actually go out and stuff like that, uh, you know, we had used a lot of propane. And I'm like, well, since I can go out, let me go ahead and, and restock on that stuff. 
and I went by a, uh, like a, it was, I don't think it's a racetrack. It was like a racetrack, big gas station, giant store, one of those things in Texas where you can go have lunch and get gas at the same time. And, um, I was watching people like bundled up in coats, gloves on, warming their hands over the thing that turns the hot dogs and makes those gross hot dogs go back and forth. And like, here's like, this person is, you know, happy to be able to get to racetrack or quick stop or whatever to buy a nasty burrito and a hot dog. And while they're there, they're literally warming up over the hot dog machine and they just got out of their car, which of course has heat. So that person has probably been cold a while. And, and to me, my biggest things that made our life easy, we had backup heat and we had generators. And, you know, like right in the middle of, I did a video, it was only like a minute and a half long, had tons of views. And it was just like, I was sitting there drinking a coffee going, here's how we're weathering the storm. And like, this is it. Yeah. And there were some inconveniences. Um, we couldn't get the generator running at three o'clock in the morning when the rolling blackouts turned into full blackout. So the well froze up, not that we would have had a lot of water pumping through it, but that made like some repairs that had to be done and all. But overall, it was pretty insignificant to us. Um, I have a lot of ponds and stuff in the backyard that are kind of small ponds, like contained ponds. So like I was worried how that would work out. Everything lived, everything worked. Just shut the pumps off and let it freeze because the fish don't make a lot of waste when the water's barely above freezing in this part that's not frozen. And, you know, everything worked out. But I, I've been sounding the alarm to be a prepared person, right? Since 2008 on this show. So it's, that's a lot of your life, you know, to put into this message. And I feel like, most people are never going to do it. And what's sad to me is it's actually so easy to do. If you start with food and you do copy canning where you buy two of set instead of one of a thing until your pantry's full, next thing you know, like you said, three weeks to a month. Most people, and once they get kind of up to that level, they should be able to go three weeks to a month and they should not even have to spend any extra money once they're ready ever again and they can stay there. Because all you do, you use one, now you replace one, run it like you're in a grocery store. You know, you can get a decent generator for four or five hundred bucks. I had a special that uh, I announced on generators that you could get. It wasn't for me. It was from Amazon, like really great dual fuel generator for like three hundred bucks this month. And like and, and I told my neighbor who was suffering through this and they're like, yeah, maybe I'll get one. Mm. Maybe, maybe you'll get one with it. You know, so don't be coming over here to charge your phone out of my car, you know, or whatever when all your shit's out and you killed the battery like you did last time. So they they were running stuff off their car and they didn't think like maybe you should start the car once in a while. So then they killed the battery in the car, uh, so they couldn't even charge their cell phones and stuff. And I I just wonder if like will people ever learn? And I I don't know that they will. You know. Yeah, it's kind of like people. If you if you haven't woken up yet, I don't know. If, if I you don't did. know. <laughs> it's a special mentality. It's a special person, and I think it's all of us. But you have to have something that makes you realize it. And I think, like you would think, going through it would be the thing. But for most people, it's not. I think that so you got through it. So hey, what you know? If I got through it, it wasn't that bad. And you forget the misery really quick. I think what gets people to start prepping more is when they actually think about what can go wrong because any good like science fiction or mystery writer or horror film, you know, writer knows like Stephen King would say this, like the thing you create in your mind is scarier than the thing in reality. So in some ways, like kind of we call, you know, prepper porn or something, whatever, like it has a, 
it has a, a function in that it makes people start to run scenarios. And I think that way, like most people that come to my show and start asking questions and stuff like that, they seem to be people that they thought about it rather than they experienced it. I, I don't know if that's a thing or not, or if it's just in my head. There was a book I read that was an EMP. It was, a, it, uh, was it the, the day after or the second after one second after? Um, it was a popular book 10 years ago. I think I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. And, and at the beginning of the book, the, the guys on the highway and the EMP happens. Yeah. It was a great. It was a great book and it really did walk you through because that's what the author was doing. Like so many of the dystopian um, fiction writers. And, it, I, and it's true. I mean, not even an EMP or solar flare or just a, you know, any, some type of um, breakdown of our, um, the internet system, whatever, like cyber warfare. I mean, there's yep. so many things that could shut down our ability to function the way we do. And it, it, I, Lord knows, I hope that that never happens. I love, I love my comfy bed and my hot coffee and my, you know, internet and my <laughs> get together and cooking a steak with friends. I mean, life is so amazing and it's, and we've got, it, it's never been better. I feel like we've been obsessed on the event rather than the concept of systems of support. So I think it's good because, like you're saying, if an EMP is what gets in your brain and makes you think all this could go away or some piece could go away for some portion of time and that gets you motivated, great. But the real issue is, like, when somebody says, well, I'm preparing for, like, and people ask me, well, what are you preparing for? I said, I say I'm preparing to deal without systems of support Mm -hmm. because no matter what causes it, the needs are the same. We have the same primary survival needs. We all need food. We all need shelter. We all need water. We all need health and sanitation. We all need security. We all need energy. And those six things, if you shore up those six things, you've done most of what anybody can do. And, you know, is it because there was a tornado or is it because the government went tyrannical and didn't like your area and shut your power off and shut off, you know, basically put you under siege? Either way, it doesn't really matter. You have those six survival needs you need to meet. I'm surprised not people aren't more into it because like those survival shows 10, 15 years ago were so popular, Bear Grylls and, and Les Stroud. And they were just, it was, people have a survival instinct. We do, but you you know, you can't wait till the power goes out to figure out how you're going to survive. And, and, you know, my kids have taken survival classes. We've homeschooled always. And they, they've always, they took a survival class, homeschool survival class for years. They know how to build a fire with wet wood. They know how to set traps for animals. They, I feel like I need them around for sure. <laughs> but I paid for those classes. So. Yeah. Uh, uh, it seems to Pay for me- your classes. Go get me a muskrat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they know about edible plants. I mean, I'm all, yeah. I love all that stuff too. And yeah. so I, it just seems to me that our survival instinct is so powerful that the fact that so many of us have become like armchair, like Cheeto eaters. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of things lately that have exasperated that. But like when all the COVID crap started, you guys were like traveling or something like that. Um, How did that impact you guys? Okay, we were just about to set sail around the world. That's what we were going to boat school. And uh, we had a 44-foot catamaran, and we had just learned to sail. And uh, we had made it to the Bahamas when – and that's an interesting thing, too, because just real quick, we thought through – 
bug out location, fallback location of a boat is really not great considering if you do end up, because you're, if you're on a, uh, a nice boat, a sailboat, first of all, sailboats can't outrun anything. Anyway. Any motorboat can catch you. <laughs> you are, you are a, um, a target because you look like you're probably pretty well prepped on that boat because you are. You, you have to be. You have right. to be. And so you can become a target very easily. When your food runs out, you, you have to make it to ports in order to hopefully the supply chain is uh, intact and you're able to get what you need. You can live on fish for a while, true. But if someone, if it comes down to an armed encounter, a boat's not where you want to be. So anyway, yeah. that's my two cents on boats as bug out. <laughs> um, so we were not bugging out. We were really trying to go see the world and, um, we, we hadn't made it far when, the, the word came that, oh, if you're abroad, you should probably get home. That was in March of 2019. That was in, it was uh, St. Patrick's Day. We came back across the, um, the, oh, what's that called? Where the, the big water current that goes, the Gulf Oh, Gulf Stream. Yeah, we sailed back across the Gulf Stream and packed up a minivan and headed back. We thought about it. We were like, do we want to be stuck in an, at an, in an island location that's completely dependent upon the supply chain? Yeah. Or do we want to be at our home where we're prepped? And we decided to get home. So it just, it, it completely like, I think we just finally sold the boat last week. Oh, okay. Yeah, we have. I mean, we have- a YouTube channel called Sailing Nova Status, and, uh, and and the better the better um, decision might have had a lot to do with where home was. So if your home was in New Jersey, you might have been better off staying in the Bahamas. But if your home was in Texas, I think we uh, we kept more sanity than most in this state. We about the first forty days of it, we were I think as bad as anybody with mm-hmm. the hysteria the government allowed to happen. But I think really quickly into it, it's like okay, it's not going to go away quick. And we can't do this. And and our our government here, most of it, some of the like city councils in Dallas and stuff were crazy. But most of the state was like, hey, we're going to go back to living as normal as we can. And uh, of course, that's that's why people in New Jersey are dying right now because Texas lives free. That's 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 the narrative they're doing. And I mean, when we when we were talking earlier, though, I got the feeling that on some levels you view. COVID and what's happened around it is a positive thing. Is that the case? Well, I'm an eternal optimist. And um, no, I mean, I get down like anybody else. But I think the shakeup that's happened, we could have sat a couple more centuries watching whatever Housewives of Beverly Hills or, you know, whatever it is people do. And now there's no, if it's not important here, Important here, important, and I'm, I'm pointing to my heart and my head. Uh, it's not important. And I haven't had a shallow conversation in 14 months. I mean, it is, we're talking about creating a new banking system. We're talking about creating new medical systems. We're talking about freedom. We're talking about our rights. This Know Your Rights group that I'm a part of got started because four friends got together and said, and they lived in Austin proper, where everything was all nutty, cuckoo, locked down, masked up, you know, people walking around with six foot sticks saying, get away from me and believing everything that they were told on television. And these people that could still think for themselves were like, OK, one of them said, how do I stand up for my rights if I don't even know what they are? And that's mm. how far as a society, the majority of Americans have gotten. 
the majority of Americans would be like, I don't really know what my rights are and I don't know how to stand up for them. So how can you? So you have to learn your rights, know your rights, use your rights and keep them. That's the, that's the, so, and they got together and started a little group. And this is what I want to recommend to you. If you're lonely, if you haven't done this, if you don't know your rights, because it's going to, and you've got to um, vet your group very carefully because they, they, it's possible for them to become infiltrated and you uh, just start talking, put together a six week, you know, meet on Wednesday nights for two hours and have your first meeting be what are natural rights, second constitutional rights, third, possibly medical rights, fourth, uh, what are my rights when I'm being, when I, when I'm being interacting with an authority, like a police officer? Um, another one can be, how can we interact with our sheriffs? Because sheriffs take an oath to the constitution, police don't. Um, and your, your, your sheriff is there to, the sheriff can tell, can, can decide that they're not going to, um, enforce a certain Mandate or law or whatever, mandate, mandate, but whatever, because it's unconstitutional. They disagree with it. Whereas, um, as I understand, um, the, the, the police are more likely to do as they're told in a chain of command where, and, and the, I, I don't know, the, the sheriff is apparently our line of defense as citizens. They're supposed to be really on our side as opposed to the government side. And so. Yeah. Now, we'll correct one thing, at least in the state of Texas, a law enforcement officer in the state of Texas, their oath is uh, to both the Texas Constitution and the U.S. Constitution. The police? The police, yes. The now, police? whether they follow that or not is is debatable. But, I mean, I, my brother-in-law is a police officer, and, and I've had this discussion with him, and their their oath is it, it does invoke both the Constitution okay. and, the, and the state. Again, that doesn't mean that they follow it. And I think part of the problem is that their people, they're a product of the same educational system. Uh, most of them in most jurisdictions now to be a cop, you have to have a college degree, which that didn't used to be the case. So now they get that level of indoctrination as well. And yet, and I don't mean to insult anybody, but this is true. You can't become a cop. Um, especially like, you know, a state cop or a, a city cop or whatever, if your IQ is too high. You just can't. Like, there's there's literally been lawsuits over this, and it's not you can't, it's that you won't. It's that you'll take a test, right, that will evaluate you, and one of the things they'll do is, is come up with, they call it something different, but it's an IQ score. And if you have an IQ of, like, 120, you're not going to get an offer to go to the academy and have a job. And the reason that they do that isn't, like, we want dumb people, because a person with a 110 IQ isn't stupid. They're just not overly intelligent either. They're they're above average. Um, but what they say, and they're right about this, by the way, it's just still a bad outcome. A person with a high IQ will become bored in a career like law enforcement, especially if they're not working like high level, you know, bank crime where they're trying to decrypt things for the FBI or something. If you're just randomly doing your job every day, pulling people over for speeding, writing up reports, like, and you have an IQ of like a 130, you're going to get bored and it's what's going to happen is you're going to quit. And you're probably going to quit within four or five years. Now, at that point, the state has an awful lot of money invested in you. So this, you know, there's conspiracy theories. This is to keep them stupid or whatever. It was a financial decision, mostly, I believe, that was like, you know, we can't have all these people we're putting all this money into training hiring them, gearing up our police departments, and then they quit and they go off to do something else. 
Um, and so that decision was made. And, and if, if anybody doubts me in that, you can just start Googling. Uh, even Google hasn't purged it all out yet. There was actually a lawsuit, I think it was either in Pennsylvania or New York, uh, about this. Like, is this legal to, to discriminate on being too intelligent? And the court said, no, it's not illegal. It's okay. And the reason I even knew to be alert for this when I was a teenager trying to figure out what to do with my life, um, and I ended up joining the Army, one of the other things I thought about was becoming a state cop in Pennsylvania. Back then, you didn't need college. You could you go take the physical and the IQ test and the aptitude test and all that uh, right out of high school. And then if you passed, they basically got a list, and you were in line for a spot at the academy. And when a spot came up, you went to the academy. If you graduated, you got a job. You got a job for life. And for a poor kid from the cold region that didn't understand all the stuff we're talking about today, that sounded like a good idea. And we had a family friend that was a state cop, and he came and told me, you're going to have to take a dive on it. You're going to have to, like, one in ten, where you know the answer, pick the second best answer on the multiple choice because you're going to score too high, and they're not going to offer you a job. And I, that probably saved my ass because I was like, well, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want a job that I have to take a dive to get the job. And, okay. and I know I've got some people pissed right now in the live feed. I know when the podcast goes live. But I'm telling you, if you check into this, this is the case. And to me, what that can do is now my original point for I went haywire with this. Now you've got people who went through K-12 and university. And generally, these are not people that went to Harvard or something like that that really got stretched by professors like you know, Michael Saylor talks about his first day at MIT. A guy walked in with a tile from the space shuttle and said, you need to figure out what happened to it, why the space shuttle blew up. And no one knew the answer. The people at NASA that have been doing it for 50 years didn't know the answer. And they were asked, like, they're not stretched like that. They're like basic garden variety education. So that's the indoctrination. And we're all indoctrinated, you know, to different degrees, depending on how much we wake up from it or are aware of it. And so what happened with COVID, when, when people heard the government says you can't go to the store, the government says you have to put a mask on. They knew they had rights, but if they believed their rights stemmed from government, it was totally reasonable that then government could take those rights away because of the situation. You have cops that believe the same thing because they're the same people. Got me, right? So then that cop is given an order or told to do a thing that is in defiance of their oath, but they don't think it is because they don't understand their oath. And, and I think there should be an awful lot more education, law enforcement, military, et cetera. You know, again, I'd like to just let's just we, this experiment has failed. Let's all build our little citadels and go on. But if we're going to have this and you're going to say that you're going to uphold and defend the Constitution and you're going to follow the laws of your state according to its Constitution, et cetera, you should know what that means. And you should have enough intelligence and independent judgment to go. The thing my sergeant just asked me to do is not consistent with that. And he can go screw. Right. And until we do that, like what we actually have is organized lawlessness, like even under their rules. They're not following their own rules, if that makes sense. Well, have you heard of the, the First Amendment audits? No. Oh, my gosh. You're going to love this. Okay. So you go on YouTube and do this tonight. You're going to love it. It's called First Amendment audits. And you watch these guys. They are they've got balls the size of I mean, you wouldn't believe they go. They now they know their rights. And they will go. So our First Amendment to the to the press, to a free press, you have and they know what the law is. You can stand on public ground and film 100 percent. It's legal. So you can go stand and film the police station. 
And somebody's going to come out usually and say, what are you doing? You know, and they're like, oh, I'm just filming. Well, you can't do that. And they, what they do, they'll well, why not? <laughs> right. Harassed by the police. That's when they, they'll kick in and usually they'll go in pairs too. And they'll um, go start filming. And then the police come over and tell them they can't film. And they say, no, this is public. I can film. And they will. So what their, their, their whole goal is to educate the police force of things that they don't know. So like in Texas, when a policeman, if you're not committing a crime, if you're and let's say you're standing there with a picket sign or you're doing whatever. And a police officer says, let me see your ID. You do not have to show your ID. You say, am I am I under suspicion of committing a crime? And if they say, well, no, well, then there's no, I can't remember. Well, I that. <laughs> yeah. And no, I mean, there's, there's also a place where, you know, acquiescing to authority can be very helpful in certain situations, you know, but also, so you should check that out because there is our, our, our police officers. I would say the majority of them go into the field because they want to protect and serve. They want to be a part of what they think of as good. Um, but then they get in and they want their tenure. They want they want to rise through the ranks and keep their job and get their fat retirement. And in order to do that, they can't make waves. They can't say, well, this is wrong. You know, they anyway, I, I think they 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 get um, just a conformity about it. And we need to shake that up, too. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think asserting your rights is smart. I think the way you assert your rights is really important. Like, um I'm not going to assert my rights as a total dickhead. I might feel like a dickhead to the cop, but I'm not going to be like, listen, piss boy, you do what I say. You work for me. Like, that's not going to work. That's not going to be helpful. And in the end, you're talking to another person. And I, 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 what I always try to say to people, when you assert your rights with a cop, you should do so very politely and very professionally because then they'll probably reciprocate. And if you go up to somebody in a bar who's being kind of rude, I, I used to bounce and you, you still do the same thing. Now, you know, me and my three buddies are going to thump this guy and throw him out in the parking lot if he doesn't comply. But that's not the first approach, because if I go up, even if you're the person who's wrong and I start mouthing you off and talking shit to you and whatever, your natural response, even if you're not normally the person that would do it, is going to be to be aggressive back to me. Now, when you do that with a cop, you're doing it with a guy that has a lot of cover by the state. He has a nightstick, he has a gun, he has a taser, maybe he has a dog, he has a button he can push, and more people like him will show up that will assume no matter what. He can have a sign on his back saying, I'm violating this man's rights. They're still going to assume he's on the right, right? So this is not the place to pick a fight. But I am big on asserting your rights. Like, well, can I see your ID? Well, did I do something wrong? Are you suspecting that I committed a crime? No, then no, you can't see my ID. Well, why not? Because it's and I see your ID and they'll they'll point to their badge. I'm like, no, I would like you to hand me your driver's license out of your wallet. And they'll be like, well, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, why not? And then it starts to make sense to wait a minute. I wouldn't want to hand somebody I don't know my drive. Maybe I'm going to look at it. Maybe I'm going to memorize your DL number. Maybe I'm going to use that for some nefarious purpose. And unlike you, I don't have access to a computer that will tell me all kinds of stuff. It maybe, maybe you're not really a cop. I don't know since I didn't commit a crime, since you're not detaining me. No, you don't need my ID. Well, and a lot of the police don't know that. Since no. They may have, they may have, that may have been a 10 seconds of something they learned 
But yeah. 99% of the time when they ask for someone's ID, the person pulls it out and hands it to them. So they think yeah. they have the authority to ask for your ID when they don't, unless they have a suspicion of you having committed a crime, committing a crime, or that you are about to commit a crime. If they have that suspicion, then they have to tell you what that crime is. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And then... I'm stopping you because you might match the description of a suspect. I'm not sure that if you're that suspect, that could be lying, but at least they've given you a reason. Now, I'm not sure if you're that suspect or not, so I'm detaining you till we, we verify that. We believe we know who the suspect is, and, he, you know, his name is Tim Jones, and if my name is Jack Spirico, if I get that at that point, here, I'm not, Tim, I'm not Tim Jones. I'd like my ID back now, and please, you know, have a good day, like, you know. Yeah, and you and you know, giving them your ID when you're when you don't need to, they do run it apparently. Like they'll go, mm -hmm. and then you've you've entered into their system yeah. where other things can happen at that point. Yeah. Like you can all of a sudden be on a no fly list or something. You know, like it's better to to not do that unless you have to. So it's also a means of control, and I don't think people realize this. So if if you've ever lost your wallet or your purse or thought you did, the, one of the first things you think is, shit, my driver's license. Like, I need that. Like, that is me. That is my identity. That's how we think. There's so many things I need that for, you know, other than voting. And um, then if I'm a cop and I take that ID from you, the odds that you're going to walk away, even if you can, go way down. It's a way of me holding on to you, and I know who you are, mm -hmm. right? So it's a method of psychological control, and they're taught – When you engage in this conversation, the first thing you should do is get the person's ID because you immediately assert control. Mm -hmm. So when I say, you know, if you pull me over for speeding, you ask for my driver's license. Those are the rules. Here's my ID. I'm walking down the street. Sir, can I see your ID? No. No. Or like, you know, there's some people do, you know, uh, open carry demonstration, especially now, because now it's totally legit. Uh, you know, can, can I have your, your weapon while we talk? No. I believe I'll hold, and I, you know, I don't say like, screw you, it's my gun. I just say, th I would say, I haven't actually had that one, but I would say something like, I believe I'll hold on to my property. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, with total respectfully. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, so this whole, you know, knowing your rights thing, so many Americans with, you know, it, it's, it's how we were raised. We don't know our rights. We don't know the laws. And so if you get together and create a study group where the things that are important to you, Is that, okay, what happens if I end up in the hospital? What are my rights? What can, what can I say no to? Well, everything. You, you can leave, you know? I mean, you, you, so, and then when you know your rights, like, for instance, n no one can make you wear a mask. So I drew yeah. the line out, you know, if I'm going to fly. Now, I know there's people who have figured out how to fly and not wear a mask, Um I haven't figured that out. I have this cute little veil that I wear and I can get away with it and I don't know why people let me get away with it. It's just, but yeah. then the masks don't work anyway. If you look at the, you know, so anyway, without going into all that, I fly first class, I wear a gator and I drink a lot of wine. Right. So like, I just like tell the third, it's like, keep bringing the wine. And, and as long as you're eating or drinking, they leave you alone. That's about oh. the only loophole I found. Yeah. We live in upside down world. <laughs> you know, same thing as a restaurant. Someone said, oh, well, the schools where they're requiring the kids to mask up and have plexiglass. Like, why don't we just sit? Why don't we put restaurant tables in there? You know, did you hear that one? Yeah. yeah. The kids, then they don't need to wear masks if it's a, yeah. if it's a restaurant table. Yeah. So yeah. The whole thing is ridiculous. And um, but I 
I have the need to go to Austin now and then, and um, unfortunately, which is so sad because I love Austin, but um, and buy things and go places. And so I was trying to figure out how to navigate all this time without wearing a mask. And um, and I would at the very beginning, I would acquiesce and put the mask on. Well, I for a few times I went in without it, and I had to deal with all of the the glaring and the you know you need to put a mask on and all that. And I'm like, well, technically I don't. Anyway, if you if I didn't want to deal with all that, you know, then I just put it on. But then I felt completely incongruent, and that's when you get sick because you're not you're not in alignment yeah. with your true core of who you are and what you believe and what you know to be true. But then when I when I started learning that it is not only go against our natural rights, but our constitutional rights. No one can require you to wear a mask. Now, there, the, we, we, we went, we had a couple of classes on this and we had a guy come in and explain to us, well, they can call the cops and you can go stand there and talk to the cops and they can tell you that you have to leave the, the private business. And it's like, well, if it's open to the public, is it a private business? And just there's, but you feel so much more confident walking through, not wearing a mask when you have a few things you can say that, and, and that you, you would, they, they can't, uh, they can't arrest you for not wearing a mask. It's a medical device. They are not medical providers. No. And you know, it depends on how they can't arrest you for. And a few times did happen is for trespass. You've been told to leave if you will not comply and you won't leave. So my, my method of fighting back with this, once we kind of got into it where it was the stores required, I would just not wear a mask. And and what they started doing is try to diffuse the situation. They have their little person come up to you and go, sir, would you like a mask? And I'd be like, no, thanks. I have one. Well, would you wear it? If I feel I need a mask, I'll wear a mask and I would just walk away. And up until the point that they would say, if you don't wear a mask, you have to leave. I would just ignore them. Right. Or I would notice something like and I'd be like, I've noticed that one of your employees over there is not wearing a mask. When all your employees are wearing a mask, we can talk about it. Doesn't mean I'm going to do it, but that's like, so that gives you something else to go do, right? Your guy that's stacking the green peppers over there is not wearing a mask. I, I don't think I need to wear one then and just go off about your business. And I was only one time in all of that time ever told, if you're not going to wear a mask, you have to leave. And I said, okay. I went to another store, right? Because I'm not going to let you take away my right, but I'm not going to try to take away your right. And I believe whether it's legalese that it is private or public, like, If you manage and run this store and it's your store, you have a right to say no shirt, no shoes, no service. You have a right to say no mask, no service. But the only way I'm going to comply with that is if you stand on the actual authority you have. If you're not going to do this, then you're not allowed in my store. Fine. But up until you assert that, I was here to get some beer, so I'm going to do that. And, you well, know. The other thing is I want to support the businesses that are allowing freedom to take place. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I don't want to even support those. And so uh, did you notice this, though, that when this was going on and people were all like, you know, you go in and like 98 percent of people are wearing a mask and you walk in without a mask and you start walking around without a mask. Like one in, at the beginning, I would say it was like one in 10 would go. Huh. And they would take their mask off, you know, and it would you would end up with about 10 percent of the people in the place taking their mask off. And then toward the end, before they finally rescinded the stupid order, you would go in without a mask in a place where most people were masked. And half or more, as soon as they saw one person do it, like, oh, shit. And that told you that they didn't believe it. They were complying because they thought they had to. Well, and it's we are a um, 
a, a social animal and we want to be accepted uh, even subconsciously by the, the, the social group that's around us, even if that's strangers. And they've done studies on this, you know, where if a group of strangers, if all of them are doing something bizarre, like, like there's the one that went around a little while ago where, uh, people are sitting in, it's a study that no one knew it. It was a real doctor's office and a bell would go off about every 10 minutes and everyone in the doctor's office would stand up just for an end. They just stand up. And sit back down. I saw that, yeah. Didn't know, was like, what's going on? And they were like, oh, and they would start doing it. And so that's just who we are. We're just, we're weird, you know? And so it takes consciously breaking that subconscious need to fit in and being willing. And I think a lot of people aren't willing to do that. I interviewed a guy on Freedom Junkie Radio who he said it this way. He said, being that only person without a mask on, he said, the difference between zero and one is the biggest difference. One guy walking around without a mask on makes that that's a possibility for everyone else. Like you said, when you saw people starting to take them off, even I felt that when I would be the only person in a grocery store without a mask on. And I just felt this like I'm taking one for the team here, you know, and I would see the other lady walk by without a mask. And I'm like, OK, now that's you get the anti-masker, the anti-masker wink. Oh, I maybe the, 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 little, the big the little head nod like, yeah. and it's it is it was um it that that empowered me even though I was walking around with without a mask on the seeing the other person doing it was just there was number two you know it was it was just hugely empowering like okay I'm not the only one that's that's an oddball here you know and then going out of the cities and getting into more rural areas where we'd walk into you know a little winery or a little restaurant and no one was wearing a mask you're like ah you can breathe there's there's people here who are living normal lives they and now with this whole vaccine craziness um you have to listen to my song it's called we can agree but i I had to name it that it should have been called what's in the vaccine it's a hilarious little song, but um, I, I had to name it. We can agree because I didn't think it would be published. I didn't think it would go on to Spotify or go on to YouTube or if it was called uh, nine months ago when I made the song. Anyway, um, this, with all this craziness now about the vaccine and we're the ones who are, are apparently the bad guys. And it's like, no, we're just, oh, I have a friend whose family can't believe they're like, well, don't you feel like you're going to kill somebody every time you leave your house? And he's like, no, I don't feel like I'm going to kill anybody. I'm perfectly well. I'm perfectly sane. I'm perfectly normal. Do you remember what life was like two years ago? That's the way we're living. Yeah. Just, we're living our lives. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's scary to me when I hear young people say something like they went to Florida or they went to Texas and nobody was wearing a mask and it didn't seem normal. And I'm like, holy shit, the damage we've done. And what I noticed, like, when all the mask orders went away in Texas, because it was basically, you know, you're here. You had to wear a mask in a store or till you sat down at a restaurant or whatever. Um, but when the orders went away, most people stopped doing it. And the, the, the demographic that I saw continue to do it more than others, and I figured it would be older people who were afraid, it was kids. It was teenagers. You'd see like mom and dad walk in and like two teenage girls and they're both wearing like decorated masks like they were like a fashion accessory. And I'm like, this is a this is a sickness. I even read an article that was written several years before COVID 
about the mental illness of mask wearing in Japan. Because, you know, Asian countries are more, if you have a cold, you wear a mask, right? Just for, for, but when you're sick, you wear a mask. But it becomes a thing. And, like, these people were walking around, even back then, wearing masks everywhere they went. And with no belief that it protected them, it was just more like like some sort of, like, security blanket or something. And I think they've, like, turned that on steroids with some of these people. And some of these people literally seem like... And I don't know if you've noticed, but the people in Texas anyway, where you don't have to wear a mask still doing it, they have fear eyes is what I call them. Like you look at them and you're like, man, how do you, how do you live in this much? Like if I was that afraid, then I would be living off like DoorDash and stuff. Like I wouldn't even go out. Like what are you doing in the middle of a, uh, of a, of a giant Kroger's if you're that scared? And if people say, well, they have a right to go. I agree. I'm not. I'm not talking about their right. I'm talking about if you are that scared, what are you doing? And why do you believe this thing that has no scientific evidence whatsoever protects you? Protects you. And even the people telling you you have to wear the mask don't tell you the mask protects you. They tell you something nonsensical like it protects others. And isn't that a great way to turn us on each other? I mean, but like they didn't get the memo on that, I guess, because I know you see them. Like you go out now around Austin. I bet Austin's worse than Fort Worth. Driving around in their cars and masks. They're exercising. They're, you know, running with their dog in a mask. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's. We have a nature center and you're hiking in the middle of the woods. You haven't seen another person in, in an hour. And here comes somebody walking the other way by themselves with a mask on. And you're like, what are you doing? And I don't do it because I don't want to, I don't want somebody harassing me because of my choices. So, but I want to walk up to them and I don't want to be like, Hey, you're stupid. I really want to say, I would just for, for my sake, what do you think you're doing? Because I really do want to know like what's going on in that melon that they think they're doing. Do you, do you think you're being a good obedient citizen? Do you think you're making sure everybody that sees you knows you're not a Trump supporter do you think you're actually protecting yourself? Do you actually think that you're protecting grandma in another city by walking in the woods here with a mask? What do you think you're doing? Because I think a lot of them, I don't, I think if they realize you weren't being a dick, I don't think they have an answer. And I don't even say a good answer. I don't think they'd have an answer. Like when they actually had to think about it, they wouldn't really know. Well, that's what you're supposed to do or something like that's not an answer. Well, you know, when you've got that fear, did you have this experience? Do you remember back to when, like, those first six weeks when we thought maybe literally we're seeing pictures of people falling down, like, dying in the street in China, and we literally thought, like, Ebola was coming. Yeah. And, like, yeah. it was the plague, and a third of us were going to die, and, oh, no, what do we do? Like, I fell for it. I, I did. I, I lysoled. There were some dicks like me that were going, that shit's fake. Look at it. It's fake. And, and I was told <laughs> I was an idiot, you know. But I understand why people felt that. And, and I did say, like, even though I think the guys falling over in the streets are totally fake, at the beginning I said, we don't know what this is. Exactly. And we don't know what it's going to do to us, and we do need to take a lot of precautions until we figure it out. Um, knowing about false flags and knowing about all these past things, like a Zika, where did that go? You know, West Nile. And I, um, I, my first instinct when they said, you know, okay, we've got this pandemic. I was like, okay, right. But then when Trump came on, he was president at the time and said, you need to get home. And I'm thinking, ew, supply chains and blah, blah. We really went there. So I, I, like I said, I lysoled my bananas 
when the guy dropped, we had our groceries delivered and I was like cuckoo for a couple weeks. Like, oh, he, the guy touched them. I must, <laughs> it's awful. My bananas tasted like Lysol. Anyway, um, so that first time, do you remember that first time that you walked into the grocery store without a mask that you, that first time that you, that you said, this is all crazy and I'm not doing it. Um, do you remember? I don't know if I remember the first time. I, I just uh, it's, the first couple of times even, and we were yeah. going forth to Florida to get the stuff from our boat, and and in Florida they were masking up, and I remember walking through the grocery store and thinking, I'm breathing everyone else's breath, and am I gonna die? You know, like here I go, I'm 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 breathing, and and I remember thinking, oh, I'm I don't think I am gonna die. Like this is okay. No. You know? Yeah, you're not going to die. Even yeah. if you get COVID, I got COVID, my wife got COVID, we didn't die, right? Like, you, we're, we're literally, like, I said this too, like, to put it in perspective, people get elective surgeries every day that have a higher risk of death than death by b- intentionally breathing in COVID. Like, I'm not suggesting you do that because you are taking a risk, of course, but if we're going to put risk in perspective... And then I didn't get to listen to it, but Ron Paul had a thing out today, maybe it was from yesterday, that said there's some new bombshell report out that conclusively shows that half of all COVID hospitalizations are not just not there for COVID, they're asymptomatic COVID. It's because the hospitals literally swab everybody that comes in the door, which they should, to be fair right now. But so somebody goes in because they broke their knee and then they have COVID, then they're a COVID patient in a hospital, right? And that's that statistic in our hospital. Well, that if we have a, a like a Delta wave go through or whatever, and then more people have COVID, well, that number is going to go up because if you take any random group of people, more of them will have it than, than, than before that wave came through. But I always figured it was kind of more like at least they were a little bit sick or something. Maybe the COVID didn't warrant hospitalization. Something else did. Maybe they got COVID plus they had COPD and now they're in the hospital. It's really the COPD. But apparently half and with the source being Ron Paul, I, I trust that source more than I trust Fox News, for instance. Um, and, and I look at that and I go, I bet you if we can prove that, like conclusively prove that data, if that data comes from the CDC itself, the people at this point that are afraid of this, they still won't believe it. If, if the greasy goblin Anthony Fauci came on TV and said, oh, it turns out you're right, and half of the people are asymptomatic in the hospital, they just still wouldn't believe it. They would say, oh, somebody got to them. Like, this has become so politicized, and I feel like people can't think in our society anymore. Well, you know, it, the, the fear versus um, uh, fear versus reality. Yeah. I, when I was a little girl, my dad, the first time I had to get on an airplane, he said, are you a little afraid? And I was like, yeah, because you, you see airplane crashes and they're awful and they are awful. Um, he said, well, let me just tell you this. You don't ever need to be afraid to get on an airplane because you are so much more likely every time you get in the car to yeah. die. Yeah. You are in an airplane crash. And I was like, oh, it's still a little bit scary. It's never scary to get in your car, but it's a little bit. You get on the airplane, you're like, oh, we're off the ground. It's a little odd, you know. Well, I heard a guy say, you know, people have this fear of sharks. And he said, you're more likely to die. You're like, I don't know what it is, seven times or something more likely to die in your bathtub than from a shark bite. But since we don't have bathtub week on the Discovery Channel every yeah, yeah. year, there's no fear around it. And, you know, something sharks are far more scary than the bathtub. But people, like you just said, lack the ability to think. Yep. Yep. Yeah. This, this COVID business 
Is, and I think it is back to that Stephen King thing, right? The thing in your mind is scarier than the thing in reality. And like this whole thing has been a conjuring of the mind. Uh, my friend Vin Armani refers to it as, uh, the dim age, uh, instead of the dark age. And it's, it's, it's just re, you know, refining a belief in mysticism. So like during the, uh, the bubonic plague, this thing came, began to be worn by people called a plague amulet. And they would wear this little medallion around their neck and they thought it would protect them from the plague. The, the surgical mask is the 2021 equivalent of, uh, of the plague amulet. It doesn't do anything. There's, I don't know if you know this, there's 12 RCTs. It's a random controlled trial. That is the gold science standard for testing something in the real world. And the question isn't if I put somebody in a, or put gerbils in a cage and put a mask covering over it, how much will go to the other gerbils? The question is in the real world where people actually really do this, if you put masks on to prevent the spread of viral disease, does it work? And the answer is no. Twelve studies say the answer is no. And the first one was done in 1947. The last one was done in 2019. And again, these are not anecdotal studies. These are not just like statistical gathering, data raking. This is actual, we're going to take this group of people and mask them and make sure everybody they contact with is masked during this you know, 12-week period. And then we're going to tell these people to go on with their life as normal. And the statistical variance between them is just not existent. And that's gold standard science. And that's why these people say science. They don't, they don't care about science. Don't tell me men can have babies and tell me you care about science, right? I'm sorry. Like I don't mean to mix issues here, but really like when the people are giving me when, when you're, you're telling me that we should refer to women as menstruating persons because not all people that menstruate are women. like, I, you don't care about science, right? When you say we should call mothers birthing people, you don't care about science. Like science is the last thing that you're concerned with. And one of the things I found interesting is a lot of the pushback now against kind of our side, if you want to call it that, has been that we're, we're using science wrong, right? And that we're too good at science, but we're using it wrong because and I actually read an MIT paper on this that said we think our group, right, our type of people that we're talking to right now, we have a misguided belief that science is a process. And we don't recognize the authority of science. And I'm like, you realize you have that absolutely backward. Like, if it's not a process, it isn't science. Science is a process. This whole idea of the scientific community, that is like made up bullshit. Like, there's no such thing as the scientific community. Science is not done by consensus. It's done by data and results and experimentation and recording of those and then duplicating those results somewhere else. And and when you say that, people today look at you like you have a frog crawling out of your ear. And if you notice everything's a community, it's not it's not the CIA and the NSA, because they'll sound scary. It's the intelligence community. As though these people get together and instead of spying on us, they play canasta. Instead of destroying the lives of foreign diplomats to win them over, they, they play canasta, right? So it's the science community. It's the intelligence community. It's the military community. I was in the military. The purpose of military, make other people dead so they don't make your people dead. It's not a community, right? It's not, it's not where we go play canasta or bridge or, or have like, uh, place charades, right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a thing that's designed to do a thing. And whatever that is, that, that is its purpose. And then it either does that well or it does that poorly. It's not a freaking community where, well, because the greasy goblin came out of the scientific medical community and told you, you have to wear a mask because you can have, you still have virus in your nasal pharynx. That, that is like now law. That's not science. And, and God, I mean, well, 
And the idea that someone would even, that with any critical thinking skills at all, or any thinking skills at all, would say that science is, the science is settled. That is ri- ridiculous. It can't and, be science. It can't, yeah, if it's and, settled, it can't be science. Exactly. Because questioning science is science. That's what it is. You have to be able to question it and 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 disagree with it. And I mean, and, even things that make it through the crucible of the process in science that eventually get codified as scientific law are still to be questioned. The laws of gravity are still to be questioned by the physicist, right? Like that's 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 reality. We don't even really know. We think we know kind of what gravity is. But we also know that we can't fully explain how gravity works. We have theories and math that seem to work out. So it's strong enough. It's been repeated enough that we'll call it a law of gravity. And we do know we have certain laws of gravity. Maybe we don't know exactly how it works, but I know if I drop this cup, it will fall and, and that that will happen on the planet. And if we're out in space, it won't. There's, it's weightless. So we get that. Or if it gets in the, uh, the, close enough to another object, the two bodies will attract each other. We know that, but we don't know how. And if, if we don't know how gravity works to claim that the science is settled about a piece of cloth on your face that's incapable of, of filtering out a virus, filtering out a virus, then we have just lost, we've denounced all reason. And I, I think that's my biggest concern. What do you think our biggest threat as, as a country, as a people, as free, as free individuals is? My belief is our biggest threat is each other. Like the fact that people have been so brainwashed that what we're saying right now sounds crazy. To, like half the people in this country would say, these two people are nuts. And I think that's our actual biggest threat. I think it's a bigger threat than government. Or where that's coming from to me. Like where, why is that a symptom of what's going on right now? Why are, you know, why would that be where, what you've come to the conclusion of that our, our fellow man has gotten so, we've gotten so divided. What caused that? Where did that come from? And I would leave your listeners with the best educational five and a half hours I've had in the last year called um, Tragedy and Hope 101 by Joe Plummer. Are you familiar with it? Do you know about Tragedy and Hope? Tragedy, you're, I lost, you lost your... Uh, your audio. I'm familiar with the words, but I don't know the thing. I'm making a note right now so that I add it to the show notes. So Tragedy and Hope was originally written by Quigley in 1968. And he okay. was kind of a scribe type person for some of these um, people who were controlling things back then and creating that they, they were involved with the world banking system and, um, you know, the, the governments and putting people into place and the whole Rhodes Scholar thing. He actually starts back in the back in the 1880s, 1890s with like Cecil Rhodes and people like that who were already wanting to control the world. And it is the biggest education you could get. This guy Quigley at some point decided the information he had was so important that he needed to share it. Well, apparently it's like a 1500 page tome that 95% of is stuff like, okay, well, these were the people on, you know, uh, who, were in this building when it was blown up. And these are the relationships they had with other people that, and it's stuff that's irrelevant and you don't need to sift through. So Joe Plummer, P-L-U-M-M-E-R, he made basically the cliff notes to it. And it's called Tragedy and Hope 101. And you can listen to it on YouTube. It's a, it's just right there for free. Find it on YouTube. Listen to it. Listen to it in chunks because you've got to process what you're hearing. And 
to me, what's insidious is that they, this was created, this division where we were set against each other. And instead of looking to see where this was coming from, we're just pitted against each other. And, and, you know, I don't, I can't hate anybody because I love everybody, but this other side is certainly full of hatred and I couldn't live that way. Um, it is the, the, what was it in pro, uh, Project Mockingbird, one of the CIA director, he said, we'll know that we've, we've completed our mission when everything the American public believes is untrue. It's false. And I think it was actually what we've told them. Everything they believe is what we've told them. That's okay. the actual quote, which is, yeah, it, untrue. Most of it would be untrue then, but that's, that's how they knew they've done the right thing. When they, when we believe whatever they say, then, then they have good governance. And they, I, I think that like, as crazy and dystopian as that sound, if you pulled senators out of the Capitol right now and gave them a lie detector test and they felt free to speak, I bet the vast majority would agree that we would have the best country if people believed what they were told without question. And that's scary as shit. And then when you start digging up what we've been told and how much of it is untrue and false and fake and um, purposefully uh, misleading to us, it is you you have a, an awakening that is brutal in a way. And then you go through that dark night and you come out and you go, OK, uh, nothing is what we think for the most part. Some, you know, some of it, but you, we, we are these sovereign beings that have our own relationship with the divine and trusting your intuition, knowing what you know to be true is the most important thing. So what is that? What are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? Cause you need to scrap it all and start over for the most part. That's. Are there any other resources you have for people to dig more into understanding their rights as, as sovereign individuals? There. If you go to freedomjunkyradio.com and click on get involved, I have some resources that we're starting to gather. Um, there's a couple of, of interviews I've done where the, cause this is a big topic for me. Um, my interview with Rocco Bruno and my interview with, um, Kurt Hildebrand, we, I'm, and Mark Passio is a great, a great one, but I'm trying to think of the, if, if you want to know about your rights, you know, I'm going to have to get back to you and let you put it <laughs> on your notes. I can't, nothing is coming to, you know, read the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution. That, it yeah. doesn't take very long either. It doesn't take long. No. And I, and I'll throw one thing out for people when you read the declaration. Uh, very, you know, people are generally, especially in our space, familiar with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And one of the things people don't know about that line is that wasn't the original line. The original line came straight out of John Locke's work, and it was life, liberty, and property. Okay. And the reason it was property is because without the right to property, you don't really have anything. You can pursue all the happiness you want, but if you can't maintain possession of your home, you have no place for your family to live. And that's how that term was meant. Triggering people, though, is not a 2020 phenomenon. We have been able to trigger people with with words for as long as people have understood words. And there was a great divide in uh, the soon-to-be-new republic of the time, and that divide, of course, was slavery. 
and property was a trigger word at the time. Mm. If you were a northern state, then you 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 had a very negative reaction to that word because mm. you you generally grew up without slavery and you thought that it was horrible, justifiably, that one person would own another person. If you were especially a wealthy, influential person in the South that was being asked to sign on to this thing and be part of it, the term property it had a, a different negative. Uh, that meant that maybe somebody w- didn't believe you had a right to that particular thing as property, and probably because in your heart and soul, you really know that it, there, it's not really okay to have somebody else, a human being, as your property. And, and government, of course, has not changed much across time. And Plenty of people in government actually would say, well, this is a horrible thing, but how would we function without it? Like, you know, I, I, I don't like cutting people's hearts out and rolling them down the stairs any more than you do. But, hey, it's a better system than the other guys have. Like, that's how we make sure the, the amaranth grows. Like, you know, that was that was South, Central and South America's system at a time. So there was this real concern that if. They came out with the declaration that Jefferson and, and, and it was, it was Franklin and I can't think of who else was involved with, um. You're talking 1776. Yes. I'm talking actually 1775 when they, they got together and they wrote the, the declaration. It was, it was, uh, it was Jefferson Franklin and one other of our founders that actually sat. Jefferson authored it, but then the three went over it and, and, and made some changes to make it as universal and to apply not just to us, but to the, any human being. And they changed the phrase property to pursuit of happiness to avoid that conflict. And this is where I think without being woke or anything, like the sin of slavery is still screwing with us today because it is much more clear life, liberty, and property, right? And that's why, you know, a very well-known conservative talking head, Mark Levin, uses that term, life, liberty, and Levin, right? Uh that it's it's invoking that that original concept of property and if you think about it it actually is really important that we have a right to life to liberty and property and if we have that we will then have the ability to pursue, pursue happiness and that was the compromise that was made i think that like a lot of little nuances like that the fact that i didn't learn that in high school that i took like ap history and stuff like that and i loved history and i didn't learn that i didn't learn that until i was in my 40s that that well, was the thing. I don't even know. You know? That. And, and well, but why, why doesn't the average American know this? Like, why are we we hide history? Like, that's why I would say, like, you know, some places you can learn things that aren't really directly about your rights, but are useful. Like, uh, what's his name? Dan, I think Dan Carlin, uh, hardcore history, like, and, and Professor CJ's history podcast, like those, like learning actual history, what really happened instead of what the book says happened, like, and what the results really were. Because we have this very microwave mindset, like where we're like, well, you know, the, the, you know, World War II was this thing, and then at the end, the, everything was better. There's kind of a freaking period of time in there where like lots of people died, and it wasn't just Jews in concentration camps, right? Like it, it was like total like destruction of countries and economies and people and lives, and it wasn't just Europe and Japan. It was like it was actually all over the world, and like that we just all just get skipped over and we cover World War II in, you know, history class in like four weeks, if, if we're lucky, usually more like two. And it's like, you know, who was on the, what side and who won? And then most people, you ask them that, you know, when they're in their second year of college, they don't even know the answer. I'm sure you've seen those things where the guys go around and troll and like, who are we fighting in World War II? And people are like, the British? You know, <laughs> like, it's like, good Lord. And, and, and so the fact that we don't learn that, I think, is, is really a horrible thing. And I think that history will educate you in a way that you don't, again, I don't think anybody has any rights. 
I think we are all, I think endowed by their creator with rights is, is, is a good way of putting it because you have these things, but you, you don't have them. Like if I give you my phone, you possess my phone, you have my phone, but you only have my phone to the point that I can't, like, I don't take it back from you and somebody else doesn't come up and physically overpower you and take that from you. You have to be able to defend a thing to say that you have it. And fortunately, we have enough of a civilized society for now that you can, a lot of times, assert your rights through verbiage. You can tell a cop, no, I'm not giving you my driver's license. Try that shit in East Germany in, in 1975. You would have got the crap beat out of you. So th what's the difference between me and an East German? Geography. Physically, we're the same human being. So the reason I think we need to learn about these things and learn our rights is so that we start asserting them. Somebody in the chat while we were talking said there's not enough good people speaking out. And I agree, but I think that's the lesser problem. There's not enough good people acting out. Like you and I can speak against masks, but when we walk into a Walmart without a mask on, we have a much greater impact than a post on Facebook or us saying something in our podcast. I reach a couple hundred thousand people with my podcast, but you can say that. It doesn't mean anywhere near as much as, hey, look at that guy over there with a mask on. And we need to start acting on our rights and defending our rights. And that doesn't mean being violent. It doesn't mean walking around with, a, with an AK on our back. But it does mean assertion and action. And without that action, I don't think we have anything. Um, you kind of mentioned it already. But what about your site? You have a podcast. Like, that was kind of a setup for you. Like, resource people can learn more, right, is is uh, Freedom Junkie Radio, right? Yeah, I felt that the incredible need to use my voice and to do something. And I think that the sea of voices out there right now, you know, we're like a hydro. We're giving each other so much um, empowerment. You know, if, if they cut off the head, two more are going to pop up. And people are feeling so – I'm seeing it. I'm seeing more people standing up and because people are recognizing that now is the time. Tomorrow is, 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 is not a real thing, actually. The future doesn't exist. It is now is all, it's an eternal now. And so what are you doing now? And that does create the now that comes later. And so, uh, you know, all of these people who are going up before their school boards and they're just regular parents. Mm -hmm. They're fed up with all of this idea of re, like bringing racism back. Like what the heck is going on? I heard a dad say it was dying on the vine. Yeah. In in our recent memory, what, what's up with this? Uh, people are Americans are love each other across the board. Yeah, we got some crazies who don't, but otherwise, you know, we we stand beside each other. It doesn't matter what we look like. We've gotten over that. Anyway, um, the the going to before the school boards, your city councils, changing things, running for Congress, uh, cho choosing new judges, choosing new uh, people who represent you in any form or fashion. I mean, it, it things are being shaken up. Start what's important to you. And, it, you know, I interviewed a guy, um, great guy, Jim Gale of the um, Food Forest Abundance. He's talking about we can we can get rid of tyranny by growing food. The earth wants to grow food. But for some reason, we've put lawns everywhere. And and no, I, I agree with that. I, I, I talk about abundance. Right. And like we don't go to war over things that are abundant. But I mean, if you look through history, you're talking about that. Like there was a time in history where there were wars fought over salt and there were wars fought over pepper. So we, 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 men killed men for salt and pepper. You haven't seen in any recent period of time men kill men for salt and pepper. And the reason is we have complete abundance 
of salt and pepper. Um, the, the fundamental need that we all have is food. And many of the things that we think we're fighting over, they, they come back to food. If you're, you're worried about oil, maybe uh, one of the biggest reasons we worry about oil is so there's fuel to move food from one place to another because there is no food where we live. And I think that is one of the biggest things we can do is if we start building abundance in our resources, uh, then we're going to have less conflict because we don't fight over things that there's abundance. And we don't fight over air, right? But we might fight over water where water is scarce. But nobody, you know, like there's literal fights, and I don't mean like warfare, but there's lots of fights over water in the northwestern United States because water is relatively scarce. Water rights are weird, whatever. Nobody fights over water in New York State because there's it just it rains, it rains every week at least. You know, and there's freaking lakes and streams and rivers everywhere. So nobody fights over water where water's abundant. So if we're gonna we're gonna stem a lot of the conflict, that's one of the things we have to do is create abundance. Yeah, the back to back to your whole survival prepping action. Um, and we you said earlier we we've all been brainwashed, but we just don't know to what degree. And that's absolutely true. We're all, even though those of us have gotten through some layers of the brainwashing, there's still so we've been brainwashed on some level to think that food comes from a farmer somewhere else, maybe Nebraska or Mexico or, you know, or a grocery store. It comes from a grocery store, right? And get a job so that you can buy food from the grocery store and bring it home in its package and cook it. When you could just put your seeds in the ground, literally the, the, the ground that the, the earth is abundant. The earth grows food. If you look out your window and you see trees growing and you see grass growing, the earth grows stuff. Go plant your plums and your peaches and your pecans and your loquats and put sweet potatoes in the ground. And that ends the tyranny right there. Because if you want to control the people, Henry Kissinger said it, you control the food. And that's what they've done. They're creating a food shortage. We can also, we're all starting to recognize it and see it. So the preppers are, you know, Hopefully okay. But just if there were orange trees and apple trees and cherry trees and banana trees, depending on where, what climate you live in, lining the streets, everybody would just be fine. We wouldn't have poverty. Everyone would have food. That's what it comes down to. Jack, that's what it comes down to is food. When we all have food, we're all thriving. And I, I think that's a great place to end. I'm going to recommend people do get by your website again, which is freedom junkieradio.com um, when I put out the audio podcast that will be in the show notes that'll be within about an hour of right now if you're watching the live stream uh, if somebody wants to drop that in the uh, chat there you can if you'd like to uh, and people then can go straight there without waiting for that to come out and the other stuff that you've mentioned and included in your notes I'll make sure that's in the show notes today and uh, with that we do need to wrap up because I've got another podcast to do about two hours from now so uh, we've got to wrap up. But, man, I, I had a great time, Betsy. This was this was fun. Uh, I think my wife referred to you something like as a fireball or a tornado or something. I think she was right. And uh, like I said, she's seldom wrong when it comes to stuff like that. And thank you for being with us today. You're welcome. And I want to say one more thing. If there's people out there who are considering home birth for the first time, I wrote a whole book about that. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Birthright by Betsy Dewey. Um, and it just is from a layperson's perspective, everything I learned about giving birth at home. And that's probably crossing some people's minds right now because they don't want to go to the hospital necessarily. So, um, thank you so much, Jack, for having me on and, uh, come, come, come see us and, and shoot with me on our range. <laughs> we'll do, you know, and we've got a workshop I just put out today. You try to get up here sometime for that and uh, hang out with us and, uh, 
Uh, it's a pretty cool thing to have about uh, 80 and 90 people that think like this in one place at one time. Again, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Jack. I told you that would be great, and it certainly was. I'm sure we'll have Betsy on again. Again, I have links to some of the things she mentioned in the show notes today. Remember, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help us out by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Just start your online shopping there whenever you're going to shop online, and you will support us and the work that we do. The item of the day that I have for you today is one I brought around not too long ago when it was on sale, and now it went on sale for $10 less, and it was already a smoking deal. It's the Oregon Self-Sharpening Electric Chainsaw, and it's specifically the plug-in model. Uh, it's a 16-inch bar. You're not going to be felling giant redwoods or anything with it, but for the average uh, small-scale homesteader, residential owner, kind of property about my size, you know, three acres or less, you need to limb trees, take out small trees, even take down some significant trees, as long as you get an electric cord out there, uh, buck-up material, etc., um, it is a fantastic chainsaw. It is self-sharpening, meaning there's a little lever on it. You pull it, sharpens the chain. And it takes a couple seconds to do it. Um, the chains and the little stone come in a kit. When you have to replace them, they don't cost much more uh, than a conventional chain. So there's really not any uh, detriment there. But it's on sale for 82 bucks. If you don't have an electric chainsaw for doing work like this, uh, even if you have a bigger saw and what have you, or you don't have a chainsaw at all, you need to get this thing. I can't. I can't tell you not to buy something at this price. The only way I'd say don't buy this is if you already have one, which I do. Uh, it is a chainsaw, and chainsaws can be dangerous, but i got to tell you that they built a lot of safety into this one, and the biggest safety feature in this chainsaw is that when you're using it and you let go of the throttle, there's a chain break, and I don't mean a kickback break. I mean a chain break in that you let go of the throttle, the chain stops running. And I have seen two serious injuries with chainsaws in my, my life, in real life, where I've seen the person actually injured. Uh, one, I actually saw it happen. One, I saw the aftermath of it. Uh, both of them were injuries to fingers. And both of them occurred without the other hand running the throttle and a free hand hitting the still-moving chain, and it can do a lot of damage. That alone uh, does a lot to, uh, to help things out. But again, 82 bucks. For a really great self-sharpening chainsaw, it's the only self-sharpening chainsaw I'm even aware of, made by Oregon. You can check it out at tspaz.com or thesurvivalpodcast.com. And with that, let's go into our song of the day. Remember, what we're doing this week is I'm giving you songs out of one of my Pandora channels based on an artist. And the thing is that none of the songs will be by the artist that the channel's based on. They're the, you know, the associated music, music that's in similar. Monday's song was I Wish Grandpa's Never Died by Riley Green. Uh, then yesterday's song uh, was Fortunate Son by CCR. Pretty different there. And today's song is um, Meet in the Middle by Diamond Rio. Huh. Now again, Pandora uses a thing called the Music Genome Project, which basically takes music and creates DNA for music based on its attributes. And then you can stick, and they're not a sponsor or anything. It's just something I've been using for a lot of years, and I really like Pandora. And uh, you can stick in an artist or a song or like a theme, like 80s radio or something like that. And then it'll start giving you songs based on that theme or that artist style or whatever, that, that song style. And then you thumbs up or thumbs down them, and you train your channel over time so it begins to learn what you like in that particular channel. For instance, I have a Van Morrison channel, and sometimes a song will come on it, and I don't dislike the song. It's when I put Van Morrison on, I'm looking for that really kind of chill-out 
music. Um, and, and so I train it to what I want. And, and all these channels are like that. And this one's based on an artist. And again, today's song is Meet in the Middle by Diamond Rio, which I've always liked. And they have pretty cool harmonies. And I'm just saying that might help you a little bit with understanding who this artist is. So we've got an old classic rock song, two country songs, great harmonies. And I will tell you, it is an artist, not a group, that this channel is based on. Monday, when I come on Monday with a new week's worth of music next week, I'll tell you who this channel is based on, and I'll include a link where if you want to grab my channel into your Pandora, you can do that. And with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Was 700 fence posts from your place to ours. Neither one of us was old enough to drive a car. Sometimes it was raining, sometimes it would shine. We wore out that gravel road between your house and mine. I'd start walking your way, you'd start walking mine. We Set our vows under that old pine tree. You ought to see it now. Standing in the backyard, reminding me and you. If we don't see eye to eye, there's something we can do. I start walking your way, you start walking mine. Start walking mine We meet